Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Knowledge of literature, nil. Knowledge of philosophy, nil. Knowledge of astronomy, nil. Knowledge of politics, feeble. Knowledge of Christianity, profound. Plays the violin well, is an expert single-stick player, boxer and cricketer. Has a good practical knowledge of British history. So reads John Watson's description of my co-presenter, Tom Holland. (laughs) Oh, Dominic. Adapted. You are too kind. Adapted from his very similar description of Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Which makes you Dr. Watson. It does, unfortunately. I shouldn't. I walked right into that, didn't I? You did. Um, Bring well, your service represent- revolver. Representative of the uh, of the of the British middle classes. I'll take that. Um, so yes, uh, today's topic is a fictional character, but one rooted in history and obviously a historical phenomenon in and of himself. And that is, of course, Sherlock Holmes. Tom Sherlock Holmes. We've had a lot of questions about whether what why history podcast is doing an episode about Sherlock Holmes, haven't we? We have, um, and I think one, one one way to answer that is with another question from Ian um, at Elvis717. Um, how much of the view or myth of the Victor- Victorian era stems from the home stories? So I think that's a crucial part of it. I think there's a yes. huge sense in which our sense in the, in the 20th century, 21st century of the late Victorian period is profoundly shaped by Sherlock Holmes. But I think also, I mean, I think you, can, you could say about Sherlock Holmes that he is probably... The best, the single best known literary figure ever created globally. I think there's a lot of a lot of truth in that. Actually, maybe I Jesus think... would be a possible <laughs> alternative. But I mean, he 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 is instantly recognisable. And so I think that you know you've written about um, the way that uh, Britain has created all these kind of literary myths. Yes, but, but Holmes is. I mean, is probably. Holmes is the biggest, without any question. So Holmes is the is the is the character who has been portrayed on screen more than any other by far. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of screen iterations of Sherlock Holmes, screen and stage. Um, Holmes has spawned a colossal industry. There's the there are Sherlockian the Sherlockian studies. There are I mean, we'll get back to this later, I think, but there are people who believe who purport to believe that Sherlock Holmes is a real person, and that Arthur Conan Doyle was merely you know either a pen name for Doctor Watson or a kind of intermediary. Um, there are tons of spin-offs by very distinguished writers, you know, sort of Michael Dibdin, Michael Chabon, and so on. Um, so the Holmes phenomenon is, is colossal. It is fixed in people's minds, an image of a particular kind of patrician Britishness, I think. And as you abs, I think you're absolutely right, Tom, that it has become, the Holmes stories have become a defining image of the late Victorian and Edwardian. I mean, the cabs, the yeah. the, the gaslights, the yeah. smog. Um, but w- which, in turn, I mean, they they are also a fantastic reservoir for people wanting to study the period because yes, the the, the stories are situated at at the beginning of all kinds of trends that will then work themselves out over subsequent yeah absolutely decades and centuries. So, well, I mean, the idea of the police for, for starters. The, yeah. the idea of the detective, um, the idea of science, um, all of these are crucial parts of um, the Holmesian narratives. Um, and 
Conan Doyle's genius really is to kind of knot these various strands together and yeah. create something that 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 in a sense continues to define how people around the world think of London. I, I, well, London particularly. I think you're dead right about that. So let's give a bit of context. Conan Doyle, well, he's not Arthur Conan Doyle, is he? He starts as Arthur Doyle and he adds Conan to his surname later. He's from a poor family in Edinburgh. Um, I think a, a really important thing for understanding some of the later stories is his father is an alcoholic who basically goes mad and ends up, I think, in an asylum. Uh, he goes away to Jesuit schools and then loses his faith. He becomes very anti-Catholic. Yeah, he goes clearly... to Stonyhurst and then he goes to a Jesuit school in Austria where magnificently yes. he complains at the lack of cricket facilities. Oh, which, well, that, I think which... cricket is going to play a part in this podcast, which yeah. is... Um, yes, it, uh, it is, which uh, is basically t- one of the reasons I was so keen when you suggested yeah. it. Tiresome for some, delightful for others. I think that's <laughs> what I had to say about the theme of cricket. Um, so yes, and then obviously he goes and studies medicine in Edinburgh. And this is the key turning point, isn't it? With Joseph Bell. So Joseph Bell is this, you know, beaky, patrician kind of surgeon, surgeon yeah. who is universally regarded, I think, as the inspiration for Sherlock Well, Conan Doyle says so himself. Yeah, he says so explicitly. I mean, I think um, he writes as much to Joseph yes. Bell and basically says, you yes, are Sherlock does. Holmes. Um, so people, that, that's slightly disappointing because people love to speculate about these things. And they basically can't because Conan Doyle gave the game away. Yeah. But but I mean Conan Conan Doyle so he he then becomes a um a doctor in Portsmouth I think then South Sea yeah. yeah um so he doesn't really know London very well and so in a sense his sense of London is a kind of myth makers idea of London yes it's a sort of, it's, kind of he's a Victorian Richard Curtis <laughs> he's got a, <laughs> yes um, yes yeah. he has fog instead of snow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the thing is that Doyle, Conan Doyle, I mean, Conan Doyle makes him sound grander, doesn't it? He adds Conan, the, the name Conan yeah. to, to Doyle. And he wants to be a writer and he obviously has literary ambitions. And all his life, I mean, Sherlock Holmes famously became this prison from which he couldn't escape because at the same time that he's writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, he's writing what he really loves, which are his historical novels. Have you read The White Company? I have. I love I, Everyone says, oh, it's dreary. Nobody read. I, I loved it. I read it as a child. And there's a, a sequel, Sir Nigel. <laughs> Sir Nigel. <laughs> which is brilliant. A Life of Nigel Farage by Tom Holland. It opens with an incredible <laughs> account of um, the Black Death moving in on England. Right. Um, and then you uh, you end up with um, Sir Nigel fighting with Sir John Shandos, who really existed, who was absolute epitome of English chivalry, and ends with the Battle of Poitiers and the Black Prince. And Sir Nigel captures the French king. So it's set in, set, set in the uh, the Hundred Years' War in the in the 14th century. But the first one is not quite Hundred Years' War. Am I right thinking that the Black Prince is doing something to do with Castile? Trying that's to right. restore yes. the king of yes. Castile or something. Yes. So very... Maybe that, maybe, um, that, maybe that... Yeah, that's the White Company, I think. Right. Um, so yes, he wants to do that, doesn't he? Conan Doyle. That's his dream. And he's written... I'm trying to remember my dates. He's written A Study in Scarlet in 1887. And then he comes back. He ba- that's obviously been a big hit. That's the first Sherlock Holmes novel. And yeah. then the str- so this is you have to put this into context. Um, I don't know if you've seen that brilliant. Then he book. does a sign of four, I think. The, a sign of four, I think, is a bit oh, maybe it's a bit, it's a bit later. I don't know whether he's done oh, some of the dear. stories in between. We're, we're a bit we'll we're, get written. We'll get attacked by Sherlockians. We, we will. Well, we're going to get attacked by Sherlockians. There's yeah, no doubt about are. that because we don't know. We're not claiming to be Sherlockians, are we? We're historians who enjoy Sherlock Holmes, but we're not Sherlock Holmes. Um, sort of boffins. Um, but so I don't know if you've seen that brilliant book edited by Philip Henshaw about the golden age of the of the British short story. So it came out last year, and and Conan Doyle was in there, 
and um, Henry James is in there and lots of sort of H.G. Wells and lots of people from this era. And Philip Henshaw points out that in this period, so 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, going up to the 1910s, short stories were incredibly lucrative. So if you were a writer, you'd make the large part of your income from writing from for magazines like The Strand, which is yeah, where... The Strand is where, yes, it and, um, appears. And, and a lot of the, these great writers do publish in The Strand, and they're paid the equivalent of you know tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds today for a story. And they're reaching this relatively newly literate population. I mean, literate within the last sort of 50 or 100 years. And, and Conan Doyle is to kind of magazines like The Strand what Dickens was to the novel, you know. I mean, he's 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 the guy who really sets the whole format ablaze. Yeah. Because I'm kind of reading that uh, uh, once Sherlock Holmes has taken off, um, having Conan Doyle's name on the cover would add 100,000 readers. Yes, exactly right. You can see why they would be keen to keep Conan Doyle writing Sherlock Holmes and yeah, why? And actually, I guess, in a had, sense, Conan Doyle gets fed up with him and chucks him off the Reich and back falls with. Well, the amazing Moriarty. thing is that is that that period, which is the sort of um, the heroic age of Sherlock Holmes, when it, when he's a new character and when Conan Doyle is really into it, that's only a two year period, eighteen ninety one to eighteen ninety three, and eighteen ninety three is when he publishes the final problem, when he basically throws Sherlock Holmes off the Reich and back falls. And as far as he's concerned, you know, he created him in eighteen eighty seven. Then he did two years' worth of short stories. Now he's finished. He never needs to think about Sherlock Holmes again. But, of course, he can't escape. Yes. And doesn't he – he he kind of – he slightly runs out of money. Yeah, I think so. Um, he, he set up very – I mean, he has a very interesting life outside literature. So as a young man, he he goes on a, a whaler ship to Greenland as a I doctor. didn't know that. That's a good fact. And he he goes to the Boer War and he covers – um, he, well, he goes to to Egypt, doesn't he? Because his wife has tuberculosis. That's right, and, and she needs to recover. And he gets kind of embroiled in colonial ex- escapades there. And then he goes to the he he um, he volunteers to fight in the Boer War. He's incredibly keen on the Boer War. He's a he's a he's a big, large. I mean, frankly, overweight man. <laughs> he's a big um, unit. I think he's a big is unit. The, he's a big term. unit. So he doesn't he doesn't um, he doesn't get uh, signed up for that. But he goes and covers it a bit like Churchill as a. Journalist. He writes like a six volume history of the Boer War yeah. or something, saying how. He's, what a great operation it was. Yes, it was splendid. There's nothing to see here. Move on. <laughs> um, but he comes back from that. He doesn't He doesn't really get paid for that. And so that's when he, I think he resurrects yeah, Sherlock Holmes. Well, exactly. So the Boer War, I think, ends in, I can't remember, it ends in 1901 or 1902, but Hound of the Baskervilles is 1901. Yes, but, but Hound of the Baskervilles is set before he has fallen off the Reichenbach Falls with Professor Moriarty. And then he does a story in which it turns out that Sherlock Holmes had faked his own death and had then gone off to Tibet for two years to study with llamas. Yeah. So that's the empty house, 1903. Um, And then, yes. And then basically he, he, he rather grumpily, you know, continues to to sort of churn out home stories now and again. So right up to, I think the, the case book stories, which are the last, pretty much the last stories. And features Sherlock Holmes um, fighting German agents. Yeah. That's 1927. Disguised as an American. And that some American critic said, Sherlock Holmes seems to have taken down every conceivable American expression and uses them whenever he can. <laughs> oh my God. That's like your impersonation. That's like your American impersonation. Yeah, it is. I imagine him. Um, so, so I suppose the, the, the question is why? That's the real question, isn't it? Why does it become so resonant so quickly? And what is it about the Sherlock Holmes stories that gets under people's skin at the time? What does it tell us about Victorian and Edwardian readers? 
What's your theory, Tom? Well, um, I think that if you're if you're situating it in the context of the age, you do you you have a, a kind of you have the existence of police forces, and in England you st- you're starting to have detectives yes. who, who are employed for this. You also have people who are starting to experiment with writing about detection. We've had Edgar Allan Poe was the the murders in the Rue Morgue. That's basically the first and the Moonstone, I suppose. Well, it's the focus. The focus is really Paris. We we talked about this with with Anis Parier in the episode on 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 Paris. That there is this sense of criminals and detectives engaged in titanic battles, kind of in the sewers of Paris, and yeah, you know, in the the the, the grand apartments and so on. Um, and that's what Poe is then buying into when he sets his i think he does three detective stories um and they're set in paris what's the detective called is it uh arsene Uh, it's dupin i think dupin yeah it's dupin exactly and poe gets bored of that very quickly um you also have dickens who in bleak house writes introduces inspector bucket yes there are no great kind of mysteries or anything but he's the kind of the prototype but i suppose he becomes inspector lestrade or uh, Gregson, all all the various inspectors that you get. Sergeant Cuff in yeah, the Moonstone. Yeah, in, in Wilkie Collins. And in Wilkie Collins's book, that does feel quite Holmesian because the threat is coming from, from India. From outside, isn't it? Which I think is we're going to get into in a, uh, later on because I think this is a really fascinating aspect of the Holmes stories. But what Conan Doyle does is to take these kind of various semi-formed ideas for a literary tradition and just crystallises it. And it's the figure of Holmes, clearly. Because yeah. Holmes is also the embodiment of the idea that pure science can solve everything. And so the very word science has not been used in the, in the sense that we use it now, commonly until kind of the middle of the 19th century. Yeah, because science just means kind of knowledge, right? Or just, yeah. yeah. So, so, so as late as I think the, you know, the second half of the 19th century, science in Oxford means the study of Aristotle, <laughs> which is everything yes. that in a sense that Holmes is rejecting. And so you have um, knowledge of literature and philosophy nil, according to Watson. Although uh, very interested in history, so he he, he writes uh, uh, apparently a monograph on early English charters. Oh right, uh, he's interested your own in heart. linguistics. He 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 writes um, uh, a paper on the Chaldean roots of early Cornish. Yeah, but of course the papers that he famously writes are on cigarette ash, yeah, on, toxins, uh, toxins, and on fingerprints, which is also an incredibly new science. So developed in India in the, the 1850s by the colonial authorities there. And there are people in England who say, well, we should pick this up. But it's rejected by Scotland Yard in 1886, which is, you know, that's the decade when Sherlock Holmes is starting to appear. And so I think that that also is a crucial aspect, isn't it? It is that, um, and we've had a lot of, of um, people asking about this, is Sherlock Holmes the first superhero? So that tradition yeah. of someone who is smarter, cleverer more knowledgeable than the police than the conventional authorities and that's the key thing that's why people come to him you know he's come to his rooms in baker street yes so i think that's all part of it but i think above all it's it's the atmosphere of it isn't it i mean it's the it's the language it's the characterization it's the sense of london um so there's i i noted down a quote from um vincent starrett who who wrote The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes in 1933, which is kind of the first great study of Sherlock Holmes as a, a literary phenomenon. And he says of it, it that it, the 1880s, a smug and happy time, a time of prosperity and great contentment, which, of course, is 
deeply ironic because all kinds of terrible things are going on. But there is also, I think, that sense that Sherlock Holmes is... um, he he is the kind of the guardian angel of london at its its imperial and cultural peak well london is this is one of the fascinating things that london is a world city um in this period it is clearly the, the world's great metropolis and you get a you get a, a massive sense of that in the in the sherlock holmes stories don't you? but just before we come back to london this thing about holmes as a superhero we had an enormous number of questions about this. So Ian, Elvis 717, who basically bombarded us with questions. One of them is, he says, why does Holmes still resonate today? The use of science to solve crime. Does that make him the original superhero? So the superhero is really, the superhero is developed a few decades later in America, um, a character who appears to be normal, but has powers, right? And And not necessarily Batman doesn't. Well, Batman, Batman doesn't has... have superpowers. Batman, I guess, is the closest. And I think that there are kind of Batman, Sherlock Holmes yeah. crossovers. But just just before America, there is also, and, and this is quite topical, there's um, Maurice LeBlanc writes a character called Lupin, yes. who um, is, a, is a kind of thief. He's a gentleman burglar. Yeah. Um, and he, <laughs> he, he uh, so Lupin crosses swords with Sherlock Holmes. And Conan Doyle complained about this, that um, it was kind of copyright infringement. Oh, they rip infringement. off Holmes and put him yeah. in the books. Okay. So, so, um, so, so LeBlanc <laughs> calls him Herlock Holmes and oh, Doctor yes, Wilson. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> no, no, no one would guess it. And they, yeah. <laughs> they, 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 um, they, they kind of cross swords and, and develop a, a kind of respectful um, admiration for each other. And in a way, it's um, rather like. Um, um, Umberto Eco's tribute to the English character in William, William of Baskerville in William, The Name of the yeah. Rose, which is modelled on Sherlock Holmes, in a way that the portrayal of Sherlock Holmes, Herlock Holmes in Lupin, is, I think, one of the great French tributes to England and and, and to English character. Uh, and it's kind of really telling that, um, obviously, we've had the updated version of, of Sherlock Holmes. Benedict Cumberbatch. But um, the French equivalent of that is is Lupin, which is kind of also running at the moment both both i think fantastic um so there is that sense again that 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 there's a kind of the interconnection between london and paris the um the great detective the great burglar the great um robber um and and then yeah that that tradition migrates to america where it becomes much more vital um let's talk a bit about um so so holmes is a very patrician figure isn't he so um, he and watson are both upper middle class i suppose aren't they watson has been to afghanistan and come back with a war wound, wants to take rooms, and he's recommended. Somebody says there's this very strange fellow um, that you might get on well with him. Why don't you go and and he gets there and Holmes, Holmes is rich, you know he has expensive habits. Obviously the cocaine, um, mm-hmm. all his instruments and stuff. He charges astronomical fees to for well, his consultancies because he doesn't no, he, always charge. But no, there is he's a Robin Hood of, figure. Yeah, there is mention of when the fees are mentioned, they're very large and very takes, rich people. He takes large fees from people who can afford it. Exactly. So that he can then yeah. afford to take on cases for people who can't afford it. But I suppose what he exudes, what both of these men exude, what what international audiences at the time would recognise as a kind of stereotypical Britishness or Englishness, wouldn't they? I mean, these I are precisely so. the kind of mad dogs and Englishmen who would eat beefsteaks for breakfast in, in India or something at the time. Well, they, I mean, there's a lot about their breakfast. Yeah. You know, they they're always. They, I think they get up late and have 
rashers. And they do. They have colossal, very Friday. meaty breakfasts. Yes. <laughs> and then kind of ladies in veils turn up. Exactly. I think that, that um, f- for decades after that, tourists to London would expect it to be, you know, swathed in fog and, and to have rashers yeah, and you know, bacon and eggs for breakfast. Well, actually, another character who's defined by his breakfasts, who's, who's I think, w- one of the literary descendants of Sherlock Holmes is James Bond. Ian Fleming describes in great detail how Bond's housekeeper gives him the right jam, the right eggs, boiled to the right temperature. I mean, this is very, very Holmesian kind of behaviour and the sort of setup in Bond's flat. I mean, there's no Dr. Watson. Cause Bond well, I think, it's, of, I think it's almost impossible for any, any English writer... Not to do breakfasts. Not, not to be influenced by that legacy. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, so, so both Bond and Smiley are recognisably influenced yes. by, by, the, by the home stories. I think that's absolutely right. I think something that we should definitely talk about is empire. Mm-hmm. This is the heyday of the British Empire, and funny. So, um, I, I have to be careful not to keep mentioning him on these on these podcasts. But my son is really into Sherlock Holmes, and we watched all the Jeremy Brett Granada adaptations, um, which are brilliant. And we listened to Stephen Fry, a friend of the show, um, doing reading um, the stories as an audio book on the way to and from school, and. Uh, my son said to me, God, it's, a, you know, he didn't say God because he's sort of eight, but um, he said, it's extraordinary how India is mentioned all the time. There are always characters coming back from Including abroad. Dr. Watson. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Watson's come back from Afghanistan, hasn't he? Or the Northwest Yeah, Frontier, he has. And of... he's, um, uh, yes, badly wounded. And so there is that sense that that if you go to India or to the empire, you're going to come back and you're you're going to be wounded and you're going to bring danger. That's it. So the I said, there is the that fall, sense. Of, I mean, famously, the, the description on. of London is that it's that great cesspool into which all the loungers and idlers of the empire are irresistibly drained. Yes, but there is also. I mean, so, yeah. So the sign of four. I mean, you were, you were going to say that's the, the classic example. So of the it. Indian Mutiny is in the background. The Indian Mutiny is part of the backstory. There's a character called Major Sholto, and it, uh, I, I mean, I don't want to give the plot away for people who might be inspired to read Sherlock Holmes, but there's basically um, treasure that has been stolen during the Indian Mutiny. And one of the one of the key figures is a man called Jonathan Small, who has one leg, who is in the third buffs and ends up at the Agra fort. And then he ends up on the Andaman Islands and he has a friend called Tonga and they come to. And, and, and that I mean, if you're a sort of his, historian who likes kind of post-colonial jargon, I mean, you can have a field day with this kind of stuff that, you know, there's the sort of guilt of empire and there's importing the violence and the cruelty and all of this sort of stuff from the imperial periphery back into the metropolis. And that happens again and again in these stories, actually. That Can somebody just... has been to India or or thereabouts and has been driven mad or has committed some hideous crime or there's some ghastly secret and then they bring it back into into London or they bring it back into kind of middle class suburbia. Yeah, so actually one of the one of the very best, most frightening Sherlock Holmes short story is The Speckled Band. And again, I don't want to give away plot, but it involves, um, I think, an Indian swamp adder, yeah. um, which isn't good news for, for, for anyone involved. And there is that sense that um, the, the, the empire risks blowback, basically. It does. So and again, speckled- I, think, I think that, that part of the appeal of, of Holmes for English readers, the original English readers, again, rather like kind of the figure of Batman standing proof against, you know, the... the the, the darkness that's bred in Gotham City is that he is is he's kind of like a guardian angel who yeah, can stand right. proof against 
the menace of the outside. And also, of course, there's quite a lot of American stuff as well. So um, the Valley of Fear, which has kind of Pinkertons and Strikers and all that Andrew Carnegie stuff going on in America. So yeah. there is a sense in which, um, although uh, Holmes is a very English figure, everything from around the world is coming here. My two favourite examples of those things you've talked about are one, so with India, and you mentioned the Speckle Band. So there's a character in the Speckle Band called Dr. Grimesby, Dr. Grimesby Roylott. What a brilliant name. And he's been in Calcutta. And you kind of know something weird is going to happen because he's brought back a baboon and a cheetah, which are kind of roaming around. <laughs> They're roaming around outside That's his house. Right. And he's also made friends with a lot of gypsies, which in... In sort of readers of Enid Blyton will know is never a good sign. No, well, that's very the moon. That's very the Moonstone, isn't it? Because that's yes. kind of Wilkie, in Wilkie Collins. There are these itinerant Indian fakirs or something, and you know that they bring that they bring doom, but also they relate to something that's happened out in the empire. And the, my favourite American thing is in the very strange actually in the Five Orange Pips. Um, that's basically a story about the KKK. So the first iteration of Ku Klux Klan has has gone. But they basically pitch up in in England to seek revenge on somebody who has betrayed them, um, and I guess what that gives you is exactly what you were saying that the 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 sense that the stories are happening at the centre of a massive network, and yeah. that actually Doyle is Conan Doyle is writing for people who may not automatically be be British. I mean, they may be American or Australian or something, and they may you know this sense of travel, but also as travel as something that's quite unsettling. And you yes, can- so so. Um- I mean, as a kind of, you know, source for historians, Holmes is fascinating on the relationship of the metropolis to the imperial peripheries. Yeah. Fascinating on the evolution of of the relationship between um, Britain and America, because America is a kind of running theme throughout. But also uh, what we've talked about quite a lot, the, the, the build up to the First World War, because plans for submarines and battleships and so on are always being pilfered and Holmes is always having to get it back. And in the the kind of the wonderful sense of um, depth that you get with Holmes's character, lots being unsaid. There are kind yeah. of allusions to how he's been employed by the, you know, the Dutch royal family to sort things yeah. out for them and that kind of thing. We've got a question from uh, Dr. Crom, great classicist, um, which Holmes case that is merely alluded to would be the best to exist as a full version by Conan Doyle himself. For me, it still has to be the giant rat of Sumatra as mentioned in the adventure of the Sussex vampire and the giant rat of Sumatra famously is the one, the tale for which the world is not yet ready. Um, But there's there's also, there's also one involving a trained cormorant, which I think would be brilliant. And there's the, uh, the strange case of Isadora Pisano, who was found stark staring mad with a matchbox in front of him, which contained a remarkable worm said to be unknown to science. <laughs> so that's I, I mean that's that's uh, part of the fun as well isn't it there it is yeah um yeah exactly there's the he works for the prime uh, prime minister i think at, at one point doesn't he there's the there's the, the naval treaty that goes missing and then obviously in his last bow um when at the end there's a brilliant quote actually i was going to read this because i thought uh just I, it's so first world war so at the end of uh his last bow home says to watson good old watson you are the one fixed point in a changing age. There is an east wind coming all the same. Such a wind as never blew on England yet. It will be cold and bitter, Watson, and a good many of us may wither before its blast. 
thoughts. And this you see Conan Doyle's kind of jingoism. Conan Doyle says, but it's God's own wind nonetheless, and a cleaner, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm has cleared. I might have that read at my funeral, actually. I think that would be... I <laughs> love that, that in mind. I'll bear that in mind. But also, but he, um, Holmes gets given a, an emerald um, tie pin by Queen Victoria. Does he? he? Yes, he he um he foils the plot to steal the um the Bruce Partington oh, the, Bruce, sub, Bruce the plans for papers, the yeah. Bruce Partington submarine. So there's all that. Oh, it's 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 incredibly interesting as a you know a mirror held up to all the paranoias and the complexities yeah. and the ambivalences and the ambiguities of Britain's global role at the end of the nineteenth century. So I think that provides justification enough for talking about Holmes. Do you think we should have? A break now and perhaps when we come back have a look at um conan doyle himself sure that's a great plan all right see you after the break i'm anthony scaramucci former white house director of communications and wall street financier and i'm katty k u.s special correspondent for bbc studios i've been covering american politics for almost three decades welcome to the rest is politics u.s brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. You know our methods by now. Uh, Tom Holland, we're talking about Sherlock Holmes, and you have a question, I believe. Or do you want me to ask the question? Why don't you ask I, question? I think you want to answer it. So Andrew Lysett, who I believe is a, a henchman or crony of yours. Well, he's a um, biographer of Conan Doyle. So he, is, he knows far more he about this than we do. But he's a cricketing person, isn't he? Isn't yeah, he, he, play, a cricketing he, he person? plays in the authors, the team I play for, which for which Conan Doyle was a founding member. Yeah, I, I knew you'd want to mention that. Thank so you. he asks, or he, well, he asks, I mean, he knows the answer. He asks about the origin of the name Sherlock Holmes. In his opinion, the idea that he was called after two Nottinghamshire cricketers was always far-fetched. 
But although his creator was known for his cricketing feats, he claimed the wicket of W.G. Grace, and he played for one or two interesting teams. He's yes, talking he about did. his own team. He did. So talk he to did. us about all this. Talk to us about Sherlock Holmes' names, and then I'll allow you okay. on cricket. So the, the theory that Sherlock Holmes derives from two Nottinghamshire cricketers. Um, so there was the wicketkeeper, Mordecai yep. Sherwin, and there was the fast bowler, Frank Shacklock. So that's the theory. I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's convincing. Sherwin and Shacklock, and you get Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Except okay, that when maybe. Shacklock then moved to play for Derbyshire, where his fellow fast bowler was called William Mycroft. Oh, right. Mycroft is... Yeah, Mycroft is Holmes's brother. Holmes's brother. So that's... Who knows? But I think it's likelier. Um, I think... I mean, Conan Doyle had various relatives. So... Um, there was uh, some relation of his aunt or something um, had been was called Sherlock, I think, okay. or something like that. And there was there was someone who was at school with at Stonyhurst who was called Sherlock. Also at Stonyhurst, there was um, uh, there were two brothers called Moriarty. One of whom was called James. Yeah, but it's not, that's all. So, that's kind of unsurprising though, because authors often use the names of I mean names they're familiar with, obviously. I think the interesting thing is how the, the Sherlock Holmes formula became a formula. So if you look at other Edwardian or early 20th century detectives, the most famous one is Sexton Blake, which is clearly, I mean, Sexton Blake became the stuff of lots of kind of... Bulldog Drummond and all that. Well, Bulldog Drummond is slightly... I mean, Bulldog Drummond is more of a James Bond antecedent and the name isn't quite as similar. But Sexton Blake is. Um, I think we talked before, certainly I basically talk all the time about the Billy Bunter stories, the Greyfriars stories. Um, very popular with boys and, and girls, I guess, um, in these years. And there's a detective in that who's the headmaster's brother who's called Ferrer's Lock. And there's also the detective who fights um, Fu Manchu who's called Nayland Smith. So there's obviously this sort of pattern that you have a two-syllable first name and then a one-syllable okay. second name. And in the Anthony Buckeridge Jennings stories, um, they which are written, have you ever heard of those, Tom? Jennings no. in Derbyshire? in the 1950s and 60s about schoolboys, they try to invent their own Sherlock Holmes-style detective. And they write, they the first name they come up with is Nehemiah Beltitude, and they agree that this is a terrible name for a detective, and the next name is Egbert Snope, and they agree that that's also, and they settle for Flixton Slick, yeah, which is, again, okay. kind of two syllables, yeah, then one it. syllable. So yeah, that, that is interesting, but I don't think it's the most interesting. I think it's very interesting. I think you're no. I think the most interesting aspect is, as uh, Andrew pointed out, the link crickets. I was trying to take you off that, but but also more generally, Conan Doyle was an incredibly active sportsman. So he played almost every sport. Yeah. So he he played cricket, played rugby, made Watson a rugby player. Yes. Played football. I think he played. He played uh, for Portsmouth. Well, antecedent of Portsmouth or something. Yeah. 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 So he he helped set up the club there. He uh, played golf and reputedly is one of the first people to have played golf in America. He played with Kipling, I think lost to Kipling. Wow. When Kipling Who knew Kipling there. was so good at golf? Uh, and he, um, he was an early adopter of skiing, early, an English, early yeah. British Well, obviously he'd been to Switzerland, hadn't he? Yeah. Hence so the right amount of talk that up. But really, it, it is, um, it, it's the cricket for which he's chiefly known. Um, and he, apparently he wasn't... A bit like me, he was terrible <laughs> at school. Right. Took it up and became a great player. So there's hope like for you me. yet, Tom. Like, yeah. Well, I've, I've become a great player, Dominic. <laughs> yeah. And his greatest feat 
which uh, which Andrew alludes to in his question, is that he got the wicket of W.G. Grace. And Grace was, I mean, for American or or non-British listeners, probably I mean, the Grace, most famous Englishman. Yeah, a ti- an absolutely age. titanic figure. I mean, massive, plus- massive, a kind of large in the way that Conan Doyle was large, or Nigel yeah. Bruce in the the Basil Rathbone <laughs> adaptations. Massive, great beard, um, a colossal figure, and so to get him out was the greatest thing that any cricketer could want. Mm. Um, and uh, he had scored a century by the time that Conan Doyle got him out. Um, but Conan Doyle still celebrated. And um, in, a, in an earlier podcast, the, the one about the uh, Ukraine, I quoted Tennyson. I'm now going to quote Conan Doyle's poetry. And this is him writing about W.G. Grace. Before me, he stands like a vision, bearded and burly and brown, a smile of good humoured derision as he waits for the first to come down with the beard of a goth or a vandal, his bat hanging ready and free, his great hairy hands on the handle and his menacing eyes upon me. Oh, that's very good. Magnificent stuff. Although his great hairy hands, that's probably <laughs> not, um, <laughs> that's not the most, that's not the nicest image. Um, okay, so Conan Doyle. Now, Conan Doyle is an absolutely 24-carat fascinating man. He was the judge, Tom. Did you know this? He was the judge in the world's first ever bodybuilding contest. Well, there's a sport again, you see, isn't it? I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised to learn it. He stood twice for Parliament as a liberal unionist. So, in other words, that's the sort of very much the imperialist kind of wing of the liberal family, Very, hence the Boer War. He's obviously become very well known now because of the Adelgi case. So, these are kind of the great wily outrages, as they were known in um, I think 1906, there was a um, one of the very first Indian vicars in the Church of England. He was England. a Parsi, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a Parsi. And his Julian son, Barnes wrote a novel about it. A brilliant novel, Arthur and George. Yeah. And his son, um, George, was falsely accused of these maimings of animals in a village near, um, sort of just north of Wolverhampton. Now, is that, is that before or after Silver Blaze? Which is I think it's probably af- after, actually, but I might be wrong contains the, 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 the famous passage, which is incredibly useful for historians always to bear in mind, um, about the dog that doesn't bark in the night. Yes, the and curious the, incident the of curious the dog in the night. The dog, the dog in the night. Um, it's actually 14 years after I've just looked it up. So um, uh, Conan Doyle obviously was remarkably prescient. Yes, the curious thing is that the dog doesn't bark. And of course, for historians, you're right. How many of us have used that? Yeah. You know that um, as the the thing that didn't happen is the really interesting thing, and and the other stuff. one is um, it is a capital mistake, my dear Watson, to theorise before one has the facts. That's very good. Well, that's a lesson to us all, isn't it? Um, but I suppose let's put aside Conan Doyle, amateur detective, because he gets George well, no, A. The, off effectively. He, he oh, does, on. but but there's another one as well. There's Oscar Slater. Do you know about him? I I saw I know very vaguely, but you probably know far more about it than well, I do. So, so Oscar, so so just as um, George Adalji was a, a Parsi. And therefore, subject to prejudice from the police, which Conan Doyle was very, very clear about. Oscar Slater was a German Jew, and there is this is in Glasgow. Uh, an old woman gets murdered; her, her jewels get stolen, um, and Slater gets accused of it uh, because he's pawned a, a jewel, which is not you know it's not from the jewels that have been stolen from this murdered yeah. woman. Um, but the police, basically because he's a German Jew, finger him for it. And he, he crosses America, he gets arrested when he lands in, in uh, New York, gets sent back to Glasgow, gets convicted. And Conan Doyle leads the, the campaign to get him free. And it takes a very, very long time before he is. 
when he get, finally gets released, Conan Doyle has put up um, some money, basically to, to to pay for the retrial, and is then outraged because <laughs> Slater doesn't pay him back. <laughs> and so Conan Doyle said of Slater that he is not a murderer but an ungrateful dog. <laughs> Well, I suppose you'd take that, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. if you're out and you're yeah, free. You probably would. <laughs> um, you probably, but though, I mean, those two miscarriages of justice, I think, are really interesting because we've slightly cast Conan Doyle as a, um, you know, he's he's clearly an enthusiast for empire, but he's yeah. also a man who's evidently very, very sensitive and alert to miscarriages of justice and racially yeah. based miscarriages of justice. Yeah, so, I think that's absolutely um, right. I think... Um, a very interesting I, man. I think we, uh, it's easy to, to paint Conan Doyle as a comic figure. And actually, we shouldn't do that. Although that said... The one thing that most people know about Conan Doyle, apart from Sherlock Holmes, is the fairies and yes. seances and all of this carry on, which is, which is, which has pay- allowed people to perceive him as a comic figure. So I, I imagine you've got lots to say about that because sort of religion is your department, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so lo- lo- lots of people have asked questions about, um, how, how do we square the creation of Sherlock Holmes, this arch rationalist with yes. Conan Doyle's kind of increasingly public enthusiasm for spiritualism? Yeah. And I think it's clear that that spiritualism fills a void for people in the late Victorian, early twentieth um, century. People who've lost their religious faith, but want to have some sense that there's an afterlife and some sense of communion with those who've died. Well, it's exactly what uh, uh, Roger Clark was saying. Yeah, absolutely. About ghosts. What did he say? It was a de- um, a decayed form of religion in a secular yes. age, or something like that. I can't remember. I'm misquoting him, but so Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle loses his faith as w- when he's at school. So yeah, he's gone to Stonyhurst Catholic School. It's in the aftermath of that that he creates Holmes, and Holmes is a so, is a is a figure in whom you are Watson. He constantly tells Watson to have faith in him, and Holmes has powers. His power of deduction is almost superhuman, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and Holmes has Holmes is a, 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 an almost inhuman figure. He's a kind of re- you could imagine him as a kind of religious ascetic or something. Well, I th- so so Conan Doyle is writing creates the, the figure of Holmes in the eighteen eighties, and that's the same period. I think at 80, 85, 86, maybe eighty six. I think when he starts to develop an interest in spiritualism, hmm. and in a sense. Um, I guess it's kind of two aspects of the of the faith that he's abandoned. There's there's the the, the faith that you know the, the the church provides frameworks that if you put your faith in it, then it explains everything. Yeah, and that's the role that that Holmes serves. But it also provides the hope of life after death, and that's what the interest in in spiritualism does. And it obviously then becomes turbocharged by the First World War, as it does for many many people. For lots, the of sense people, of loss. Yeah. Conan, Conan Doyle becomes a public enthusiast for it in the same way that he's become um, a public spokesman for, say, sticking up for the, the, the British effort in the Boer War or for um, miscarriages of justice. He feels that it's his duty and responsibility to um, take a stand where other people are not. Uh, it's to speak up for. He thinks he's speaking up for what is right, doesn't he's, he? I mean, that's... he does. I mean, he, he obviously he completely believes it. And yeah. what's interesting is, that, of course, that that um, Holmes has no time for ghosts. So there's the, the Sussex Vampire, which is um, has all kinds of fascinating lines for for anyone who's interested in Conan Doyle spiritualism. Holmes literally says, "No ghosts need apply." <laughs> <laughs> but you see, that is the mistake that people make, isn't it? They they equate Holmes and his creator. 
Conan Doyle created Holmes as a portrait of, uh, uh, as a version of Joseph Bell, not of himself. I mean, he's more Dr. Watson, actually. And by creating Holmes as a skeptic, he doesn't mean that he's a skeptic himself. I mean, he can be quite critical of Holmes in a way as the, as the creator of the stories. And I also think that Conan Doyle probably thought if you put him on the spot with this very question, he would say there is no contradiction between science and spiritualism because spiritualism merely represents a form of higher knowledge that we haven't attained yet. Yeah. Um, and that the two are not in tension at all. Well, he's interested in scientific service. So that's the, um, the Cotton Lead Fairies, which is supposedly well, well, that's fair- obviously the disastrous for of, him, isn't it? I mean, photographs of girls with fairies, which turn out not to be. But he's he's approaching that as as Holmes might a, a yeah. clue. It's just that yes. his powers of deduction are not quite as good as. Holmes's. Well, you've eliminated everything else. You know <laughs> yes. what remains must be the tu- truth or whatever. But what he hasn't really eliminated is the prospect that these are clearly cardboard cutouts. Um, I mean, I was <laughs> yes. having a look at the. I was, I was having a look at the photographs of fairies this morning, and I thought to myself, I mean, they're living in a world kind of awash with photography at this stage. I mean, I know photography is expensive and it's more difficult, but. They're very familiar with photographs. And even by the standards <laughs> of 1920, these are quite obviously fakes. <laughs> well, Dominic, there's one other um, dimension of famous fakery, which Conan Doyle is very kind of obliquely drawn into, which is the case of the Piltdown Man. Are you- a great historical story. So tell great- me about that. So Piltdown Man, the context for this is um, the discovery in France and Germany of prehistoric humans so neanderthals famously in uh, in germany and what come to be called cro-magnon man in uh, in france and the british feel left out you know they're annoyed that the french and the germans have early hominids w- w- where are ours uh, and the answer to that of course is that that basically britain is buried beneath ice so there aren't nearly as many but there is a sense that you know the the challenge has been has been raised. Britain has to find a, a, an early hominid, and due, in due course, nineteen twelve, fragments of an early hominid are found in a, a quarry in Sussex, in a village called Piltdown, very close to where Conan Doyle is living, and these fragments are found by a, a solicitor called Charles Dawson. He presents a paper saying, you know, these are. Early hominids. Every all, all, all the um, the British scientists are delighted, so they call it Aeoanthropus dorsoni, the dawn ape of of Dawson. And over the course of the succeeding um, months, and then the next couple of years, up until the start of the First World War, more and more finds are made. And the the most <laughs> the most the most ludicrous of these finds is, and I'm sorry to bring the subject up again, a cricket bat. <laughs> <laughs> made, an, what, an ancient cricket bat <laughs> made made out of elephant bone and right. I, uh, and it seems astonishing that people haven't figured out that this is all a massive fraud but people want to believe it what are they claiming and, that stone age men played cricket is that the they, that seems to be the implication <laughs> that that people were playing cricket back, back, in, back in the laughable. ice age <laughs> And it's it's not until the after the Second World War that finally it conclusively gets proven that that you know that this was all a fake. So the likeliest identity of the faker is obviously Charles Dawson, this guy who's discovering it. But yeah. you still have to wonder what you know. Where's the cricket bat coming from? <laughs> you think so, this is kind of Doyle. <laughs> so so one one theory, the theory that um, uh, I, I think is the most convincing is that it's a guy called Martin Hinton who is a volunteer at the Natural History Museum 
who works out that it's a fake and basically comes up with a cricket bat as a way to completely make it all ludicrous so that people will just give up. But it on doesn't it. work. Because but it doesn't pre- work. These people go brilliant. But the other theory is that it was Conan Doyle who was trying to, you know, who was kind of um, playing Moriarty, that he was, um, you know, putting out misleading people and that, that the cricket bat was put in as a clue to his identity. But I don't, again, I, I don't see Conan anyone... Doyle doing that because Conan no, Doyle is not... quite straight, isn't he? He's not some. Yes. Um... He plays a straight bat. Yeah. He's... Well, yes. Very good. Yeah, he does. I don't see Conan Doyle doing that, to be honest with you. So, so I said it was tangential. Yeah. But no, it's, good. Slightly, it's very good. It's like a great story. story so... Just before we um, do a couple of more, quite a couple of questions and then call it a day. I think one of the fascinating things about Sherlock Holmes is, that, is its afterlife, obviously. So in films and so on. And I think what's very unusual is that it, it creates this industry in which people write Holmes pastiches and things. And actually, often the people who are very interested in this period will do that. So Nicholas Meyer wrote a book called The 7% Solution, where Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. Uh, Michael Dibdin wrote a brilliantly dark book called The Last Sherlock Holmes Story about Holmes and Jack the Ripper. Well, Jack the Ripper, I was going to mention Jack the Ripper, because in a sense, the afterlife of Jack the Ripper is a riff on Sherlock Holmes, I think. It is. It absolutely is. Um, I mean, the 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 the, the, the fog, the the alleys the sort of sense of opium dens in the background so that's 1888 and... so that's a couple of years after study in scarlet it's absolutely of the period isn't it and, and but I, I think, think the whole the whole because you know, we had Hallie Rumenhold on who, who wrote brilliant book five about the the victims and the one of the reasons why the victims get occluded is because it's all about um the villain and supposedly yeah. the person hunting him. So it's essentially the the template is Holmes and Moriarty being it mapped ab- onto absolutely it. Absolutely is. It absolutely is. And I think we didn't really talk about Moriarty much. It's really interesting that Moriarty actually features so little in the home stories. I mean, he's pretty. I think he's pretty much only in the 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 episode of the the Reichenbach Falls story. Yeah. Um, that he has come to overshadow the, the series to such an extent. And I think obviously the fact that he's called Moriarty, um gives you some indication of the anxieties of of Conan Doyle at the time. I mean, Conan Doyle was a liberal unionist, and the reason the liberal unionists broke from the liberal party is over home rule for Ireland. Yeah. And I think it's no coincidence that he's called Moriarty. So he's both of London and not of it. You know, he's not Indian, he's not Afghan, but he's Irish. Um, and I think that's one reason why he... There's something in him, and there's the idea of that super criminal as well, obviously. That's very much... The Napoleon of crime. The Napoleon of crime, Exactly. Um, but yeah, the way that Holmes has created this this industry. So we had a question about Holmes creating fandom, and I think that's probably right. The Baker Street Irregulars, the first Sherlock Holmes society, was set up in New York in 1934. So that's basically the first fan club. Um, anyway, let's yes. do a couple of questions, shall we? Yeah, yeah. We've got a question about illustrations. Mm-hmm. Cora Beth, how much do you think uh, Paget's illustrations contributed to the success of the stories? Um, massively right the because, look of Holmes yeah yes because because he's he's um it's Paget who creates the look of Holmes it doesn't correspond it's a bit like Dracula he doesn't wear Bella he Lugosi doesn't, wear... doesn't correspond to Bram Stoker's yeah. description and um Paget's portrayal of Sherlock Holmes doesn't correspond to really to Conan Doyle's um no but there's an much... interesting story about Paget that that um apparently the um the guy who commissioned him thought that he was getting another Paget who was uh, who was um, the illustrator for uh, some ma- some magazine on um, the uh, the expedition to rescue General Gordon? Is that so? Yeah, and it was the and wrong then, and, then, and they got the wrong one. So it's like um, like scoop. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a very good story. But that's crucial. I mean, the deer stalker and the the, the pipe, the, the, the pipe. huge pipe, which he never yeah. smokes, I think, in the um, or or not much in the in the stories. Because um, that's why Holmes is so internationally famous is that you can just put a pipe and a deer stalker and everyone knows. Yeah, but that that's your superhero analogy, isn't it? That he has yeah. a costume, um, which I think is is often crucial to the success of these characters, particularly when they move on to celluloid. Um, what about? Uh, the modern Sherlock Holmes, so Chilton Hundred. Did Stephen Moffat ruin Sherlock by turning him into a kind of James Bond superhero, or is that dynamic present in the stories all along? So this is the sort of very twentieth-first century um, modernized version of Sherlock Holmes that's been incredibly popular, not just in Britain but all over the world. What do you think of this, Tom? Um, I thought the um, uh, that the early episodes were fantastic and yeah. clever. And knowing and witty, and you could enjoy them if you didn't know the stories, and if you did, your your knowledge of them was enormously enhanced. Um, I, I thought that a, a bit like Doctor Who, it ended up becoming a complete mess. Um, yeah, there were too many subplots, too many people dying and coming back to life, and all kinds of things. It became a tremendous muddle. Yeah, I think um, it, I, I actually didn't like it. Um, you expect that of a professional grump like me, I suppose. I reactionary. do. Yes, I do. Um, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, do you, have I, you seen Lupin? No, I haven't. It's really good. I think. I think better. Right. Okay. Obviously, it's obviously modelled on it. They're um, not paying you, Tom. They're not. No, they're not. They're not. But it, obviously, if I, if people want to send me free copies of Lupin, you know, feel free. I'm an influencer. You are I'm an here influencer. For hire. I'm here for. I mean, hire. That, the business with biscuit tea is That's shocking I've still, and shameful. I've seen piles of it now. Have you? So they keep sending you every time you mention it on the podcast. <laughs> Are you going to get tea. more biscuit tea? Let's see. <laughs> Buy it, guys. Um, can I uh, end on a personal note? Do is it going to be very moving? No, it's not. Okay. But it's it. it's to do with where I live in Brixton. And Study in Scarlet is set in a house in Brixton, Lauriston Gardens. Okay. And I, I, I'd i always look it up in the A to Z, couldn't find it, couldn't work out where it was. And then uh, Tony, our producer, sent me a message um, about, I don't know, a couple of months ago saying, guess where I am? I'm in Max Roach Park which is where the study in Scarlet was set. And it turns out that Lauriston Gardens never existed, but from the description of it, it's a house that was set back from Brixton Road that then got, uh, these all got demolished and they put a park up and it's now called Max Roach Park. So that is where Sherlock Holmes begins. And so this is just a shout out to Tony, our producer. Who I know nice. is a massive Sherlock Holmes. He's a very big Sherlock Holmes. Yes. You know what, Tom, you're a great man for these walks, aren't you? Um, yeah, you love a, a walk, um, and I know we're going to do, do a Sherlock Holmes walk. We yeah. should do a, a podcast of a Sherlock Holmes walk. I mean, basically, if you're not interested in Sherlock Holmes, too bad. <laughs> but, um, but if you are, for the three remaining listeners who've stuck with us to the end of the podcast, you really do have a treat to look forward to because that'd be a great idea. Let's do that. Let's Sherlock Holmes walk. Um, Tom loves these walks. He's already thinking about it, even as I speak. I am. That's a very very fun. Um, the phone is going, so I think I should call it a day. The Goodbye. game's afoot. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. <laughs>